Uh, hey, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us this morning from wherever it is you are. And uh, I just trust that this time in the Word together will be encouraging to you and, and instructional to you and, and contribute to your spiritual growth uh, this morning. We're in a series that we've titled Embrace Joy, and it's in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, which we know as Philippians, and uh, today we're in chapter 2. Last week, we heard Paul saying that each of us is to work out our own salvation, adopting the mindset of Jesus Christ, who not holding tightly to his rights as the Son of God, um, emptied himself, humbled himself, became one of us, and became obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. We're not ever to work for our salvation. That's not what the Bible teaches, but to work it out. God is at work in you, Paul said, to give you the the desire to do God's will and then to give you the power to do it. Therefore, work out what God is constantly and continuously and progressively and relentlessly working in. A major part of what that means is that you and I get to participate actively in and intelligently and energetically with the Holy Spirit in his work of making us more and more like Jesus Christ. I once heard someone say that the gospel of grace is opposed to merit, but not to effort. We don't earn our salvation. It's a gift of God's grace from first to last. But we can participate and cooperate with what God is about in our lives through prayer, through reading and meditating and reflecting on God's word by obedience to his will as it's revealed in the Bible, uh, through receiving encouragement and instruction from other believers, and by sharing our faith with others in practical ministry and, and more. And if you want the workout, if you want the workout, You've got to get on the playing field. In today's passage, Philippians 2, verses 14 through 18, Paul addresses one very essential dimension in that effort to cooperate with the Spirit of God in his work of conforming us to the image of Christ. Will you bow in prayer with me? Father, as we come now to your word, will you open it to us? Will you illuminate it? to us. Help us to perceive with our minds and to see with the eyes of our hearts what your spirit was conveying through the Apostle Paul to the Philippian believers and what you wish for us today to understand and to apply in our own lives and in our relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ and the family of God. We want to embrace joy So will you work in us the mind of Christ, who is our example, our Savior, and our Lord? Help us now, we pray, for your glory, for the sake of your kingdom, and its rule in our lives. Amen. Philippians 2, verses 14 through 18. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation 
among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The central command in this passage is to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Uh, it's, uh, it's important to observe out loud every now and then that, that the commands of the apostles are real commands. Uh, they're not mere guidelines or, or simple suggestions. Do all things without grumbling or disputing is a command from the Apostle Paul. Paul follows the command by providing four reasons why it is so essential that we heed the command and obey it. We're to do all things without grumbling and disputing, first of all, because it touches on our identity in Christ, who we are in him. Secondly, because it's central to our calling to work out our salvation. Third, because it has a significant bearing for each of us on our personal witness to the world. And then fourth, because it honors those who have been our spiritual leaders, those who have invested in us to to help us in our spiritual progress and who have modeled for us what a life lived in Christ is supposed to look like. We're going to look at each of those this morning, but before we explore those four supportive reasons for the command, Let's examine the command itself. You know, the command itself is, is yet another clue to a problem that had had emerged and was taking hold in the church at Philippi, uh, namely a, a grumbling and an arguing, a, a one-upmanship, it seems, a struggle for power and influence. And, and at the center of it all, it would seem, was a conflict between two women of whom Paul writes in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. We don't know who the person Paul addresses as true companion actually was, but whoever he or she was, Paul's concerned. He feels that these two women really need help in resolving the issues that stood between them. And sometimes that's the case when conflict takes hold between believers within the family of God. You know, the setting of the command is in all things, all things. It's in everything that we do. It's a fully orbed kind of 360 degree command. Whatever we do, wherever we go, whatever we eat or drink, whatever we say or think, we are to do it all without grumbling or disputing. This Greek word translated grumbling is an interesting one. It's gongusamon, gongusamon, and it's an onomatopoeia, a word that sounds like what it means, like the word grumble or growl or whisper, or mutter, or moan. (laughs) 
Many translations of the Bible use another onomatopoeia, which is murmur, our English word murmur. And murmur is a good choice because it approximates the the kind of unintelligible sounds or of expressions of discontentment spoken most often under our breath. And Paul uses it here of grumbling discontentment among the members of the church. The second word here is disputing, and that word speaks to arguments that are carried on either out loud or silently within our own minds. And it's uh, it's sometimes translated thought simply because it, it usually represents a dispute that's going on under the radar uh, in your own mind. You know, I I live with these passages of Scripture that I speak on each week, and I live with them all week. I do all things without grumbling or disputing, and I've been I've been at that all week. I mean, I mean, you guys, you know, you you get to walk in, um, and and in this case, log on, and uh, spend a little time, and then when it's over, you you log off and kind of leave it right there. But but I have to deal with this thing all week. I have to live with this passage of scripture, and I. Looking for a little sympathy here, actually, because this one has been convicting. Because something I've observed about myself this week is that I actually do a lot of complaining. I mean, how many of you would say the same? Would you say the same? I mean, not that you would say that I do a lot of complaining, but that you do too. I had to laugh this week when a woman in our church posted on Facebook a picture that she'd taken of a sign that read, Public notice, due to budget cuts, the rising cost of electricity, gas, and oil, plus the current state of the economy, the light at the end of the tunnel has been turned out. Have a nice day. I thought it was timely. You ever felt that way? Things just aren't going well. It seems like maybe they never will, never never be the same again. So that you're losing hope, you're inclined to grumble. There's a lot of that on social media and network news. I mean, if you spend any time on Facebook or Twitter, for example, at all, you, you know that the dominant theme for many who post there is complaint. If you watch CNN, you'll hear them complain of, all day long about President Trump and the Republicans. And, and if you switch over to Fox News, you'll, you'll hear them complain all day about Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and, and the Democrats. Complaining is practically the national pastime. It's chronic. It's widespread. I was reminded this week of that old song by Rod Stewart that uh, the chorus of which went, Some guys have all the luck. Some guys have all the pain. Some guys get all the breaks. Some guys do nothing but complain. And really, the, the whole song itself is is a complaint um, that his arms are empty and how unfair it is that others have found love, but but he has not. I had a great aunt who, who liked to use the phrase, nobody loves me, everybody hates me, guess I'll go eat worms. Complaint, grumbling. You know, when we look into the pages of the Old Testament, uh, it becomes very clear that the nation of Israel did a lot of grumbling. 
they complained to Moses and Aaron while they were still in Egypt before they'd even left. Uh, they complained at the Red Sea before God parted the waters. They complained at a place called Mara because they were thirsty. They complained in the wilderness of sin because they were hungry. They quarreled with Moses at Rephidim and were about to stone him to death because, again, they were thirsty. They complained about the manna and the quail that God provided them for food. Even Miriam and Aaron, Moses' sister and brother, grumbled against him and his leadership. The Israelites rebelled against Moses again when when the spies came back from Canaan with a report that struck fear into their hearts. In number 16, an amazing story, 250 chiefs of the Israelites rebelled against Moses. And and in response, I mean, the Lord had just had it. He was done. And, and he caused the ground to open up and swallow every one of them and their followers. And then the people complained that Moses had killed their leaders. They complained again at Meribah about the lack of water. And then in Numbers 21, they complained again, and and the narrative there in Numbers 21 is quite different, and it, it's unique, and it's worth uh, taking a moment to look at it. Numbers 21, beginning at verse 4, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now listen to what God did. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who's bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This narrative shows us a couple of really important things. First of all, it shows us how seriously God takes the matter of grumbling against God and against his appointed leaders. The bronze serpent in the wilderness was an Old Testament foreshadowing of the cross of Christ. To survive and and be delivered from the the plague of serpents, from the, the bite, the venom of the serpents, They had to look to that bronze serpent that that Moses had lifted up on a pole. And in the same way, our only means of being delivered from the wrathful judgment of God by our sin, or for our sin rather, is is to look to Christ and to his cross. Jesus Christ is God's only provision for the predicament of your sin and mine. There is salvation in no one else. Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father but through me. So Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
And I think we each need to ask ourselves if we are really different. Then we need to ask that with all seriousness, with all introspection. God blesses us, and what do we do? We, we complain. He blesses us some more, and we want more. We're still not satisfied. We ask him to lead us in his will, and then when he reveals it and, and lays out his directives for our lives, we're not really sure about that, and so we complain about that too. It's important that we take a look in the rearview mirror here in Philippians and, and consider the flow of Paul's thought. Remember that back in verse 1 of chapter 2, he, he wrote, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and a question we need to ask ourselves here is, is where, in fact, we look for our encouragement, for our comfort, for sympathy and affection, for fellowship. Uh, we're inclined to grumble when we feel a deficit of those things in our lives, aren't we? And we feel that deficit because we look for those things in all the wrong places. Yet these are the very gifts, these are the very resources that that Christ wants to give to us in abundance. Jesus said that the, the heavenly Father knows everything that we need, and if we'll simply trust him, seek his kingdom, seek his righteousness, then everything that we need will be ours because our heavenly Father already knows that we need it, and he will provide it. Paul goes on, he says, we are to do all things without grumbling or disputing, first of all, because of our identity in Christ. That is, who we are in him. Notice verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Paul borrowed these words from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And at verse 5, Moses says of the nation of Israel, the Jews, they have dealt corruptly with him, that is, God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Paul wants us to be blameless, innocent, and without blemish. What does he mean? Well, blamelessness is is about who you are to the world as the world sees you. Uh, And the word means that as the world examines you, no one can make any accusations stick because of the moral excellence that characterizes your life, not only in appearance, but in reality, behind the scenes under the veil, under the external appearance. So God calls us as Christ followers to moral excellence. Innocence describes who you are within yourself as a as a Christ follower. The word itself means unmixed. And, and in the ancient world, this word was used of metal that's pure and without alloy. It describes a, a person of, of integrity, a person made of whole cloth, whose thoughts and motives and conduct are pure. And then that phrase without blemish describes who you are in the sight of God. 
we are unblemished in God's sight, not because we are without sin, but because he has cleansed us from all sin by the sacrificial blood of Christ. Our sins are atoned for, which means that by faith in Christ, God's wrath towards us is satisfied, has been satisfied, because he poured it all out on Jesus at the cross. And our sins are removed from us forever. Moses said of the Israelites that they were blemished, that they were a crooked and twisted generation. Because God has dealt with our sin through Christ and we are no longer blemished, we are no longer part of that crooked and twisted generation. But we live, Paul says, we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So Paul says, secondly, that we're to do all things without grumbling or disputing because it's central to our calling, which is to work out our own salvation, or we're working out our salvation in an environment that is averse and antagonistic to that work, averse and antagonistic to the to the to God and to the claims of Jesus Christ. That word translated crooked is the word ascolias. It's the word from which we get our word scoliosis, which re, which refers to a curvature of the spine, and here it means bent or warped, not in the shape that was intended. Twisted means thoroughly turned away. I mean, it means to be turned away from God and from his will for our lives. It, it describes the one who sees the light and, and, and immediately turns away into darkness. It's also translated perverse or corrupt. I wonder, do you, do you think we live in a crooked and perverse generation? One that's bent? one that's warped, that's out of the shape that God intended? Do we, do we live in a generation that has thoroughly turned away from his word and his will? Think about this. In America, in 2018, there were 16,214 murders. That translates to an average of 45 deaths by murder each day all year long. In 2019, 48,344 Americans died by suicide, an average of 133 per day, or one every 11 minutes. Every 73 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted. On average, there are 433,648 victims, age 12 or older, of rape and assault each year in our country. We do live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, and they elevate and they celebrate their twistedness, their perversion, so that they become more crooked, more twisted, more perverse with each passing day. It's in that environment that you and I are called to live obediently, to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. Jesus said of us in his high priestly prayer in John 17 that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. In the world, but not of the world. It's in this real world, in the in the midst of crookedness, in the midst of rampant 
perversion. That we're to work out the implications of our, of our salvation, recognizing that this world, this crooked and twisted world, is not our home. You know, I hear so many Christians complaining about the world, how godless it is. And it is godless, and it is perverse. So stop complaining. It's real. It's there. Start shining. Start shining in that world. We're to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Third, because it has significant impact on our personal witness to the world. Notice verses 15 and 16 of Philippians 2. Among whom, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Notice with me that you shine states the present reality. Paul's not actually telling them to shine. He's, he's reminding them that they already do. By virtue of being in Christ, we stand out in the world. The people for whom that light is intended are the people made crooked and twisted by sin whom we encounter every day, whom we interact with every day. We are lights in the world. The NIV translates it, you shine among them like stars in the sky. And just imagine the contrast of stars against a clear night sky, stunning in brightness and beauty. And that's the word picture Paul's painting for us. Jesus said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, light has to be seen in order to be effective. The challenge for us as Christ followers is to make sure that that the light of Christ within us is allowed to shine in all of its brightness, in all of its glory, unobstructed, unhindered, unfiltered. Maybe what Paul is saying is similar to what Jesus said, that grumbling and disputing among believers has the same effect as putting a light under a basket so that its light has no opportunity to reach those who are living in darkness. In another place, Jesus said, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. In this, in the very next chapter, Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, by this, all men will know, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, Jesus wanted them to be reminded that that as they lived their lives in that crooked and twisted generation, the world was watching. Francis Schaeffer, who was a 20th century theologian, called this the final apologetic or the final defense for our claim to be disciples of Jesus as the world looks on. He said that it seems that God has granted to the world the right to to decide whether we are authentic disciples of Jesus or just fakes and pretenders 
based on one factor, whether there is in fact an observable, tangible love between believers. See, if the world observes the church and they see more grumbling and disputing than active loving, which is a frequent criticism of Christians and of Christian churches, the world will just walk away. But if they see real faith, genuine hope, active love, (laughs) they may be open to the message of the gospel because they see so little of that in their own lives and in their own communities, their own world. Paul also said that we shine as we hold fast the word of life. And I'm I'm pretty sure that, that by that expression, he wasn't envisioning Christians superstitiously gripping their Bibles in fear of the world. The, the word of life is the gospel, which which brings eternal life to whenever it's received by faith. There, there was a, a moment in Jesus' earthly ministry when, when many of those who had been following him uh, turned away. They, they just went home. And on that occasion, Jesus said to the, the 12 men who composed his inner circle, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. This word translated holding fast is epokontes, and it can mean either to, to hold fast or to hold forth. Well, which is correct. I think Paul may very well have had both in mind that they would hold fast the word of life so as to live it, and that they would hold forth the word of life so as to make it known. Finally, finally, we're to do all things without grumbling or disputing because it honors those who are or have been our spiritual leaders, those who have invested in us to help us in our spiritual progress, and who have modeled for us what a life lived in Christ is supposed to look like. See, Paul's desire for the Philippians was that they would do all things without grumbling or disputing, that they would live lives worthy of the gospel, that they would shine like stars in the cosmos, that they would hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, he says, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And, you know, I I don't know of a healthy Christian leader who hasn't wrestled with this concern. Questions like, will the investments I have made in lives bear fruit for eternity? Has my teaching been on target? Has has anyone's life really been changed, uh, gripped by the gospel, transformed? Will the church or churches that I have led prove to be healthy, reproducing congregations? Have I built with the right materials? And and on the day of Christ, will I receive his commendation or will I be ashamed? And I can tell you that there have been many men and women who have made personal spiritual investments in my life. Some who knew me and whom I've known and loved and others whose investment was less personal, but no less significant. And I want to live and serve and be fruitful in a way that honors their investments. 
many of them have already gone on to heaven. And I want them to be blessed. I want them to be honored by the fruit that's been reproduced in my life because they were faithful. Not because they were superstars, but because they were faithful. And they made the right investments. In verses 17 to 18, Paul the Apostle expressed his willingness to do whatever is necessary to see the Philippians' salvation brought to full completion. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, he wrote, I am glad, I am glad, and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, Paul's referring to what was known in ancient Israel as as a drink offering. And you, you can read about it in Numbers chapter 15. It was a, a measure of wine that was poured out uh, over other offerings, whether they were food offerings, grain offerings, or burnt offerings. Paul saw the faithful service of the Philippian believers as a spiritual sacrifice to God. Do you ever think about your ministry that way? That is something you're offering to God as a, as a sacrifice to Him, as a, as a pleasant aroma, fragrant aroma to Him? And then Paul regarded his own life as a drink offering, being gladly and willingly poured out for their spiritual advancement. Now, remember, that he was the one who had introduced the Philippians to Jesus. He was, in a sense, their spiritual father. He was there at the inception of their faith. He was the one who planted the church in Philippi. He was their encourager. He was their nourisher. He was their model. And now he wanted to be there to witness the completion of their faith on the day of Christ, on that day when Christ returns. And the pouring out of his life as a drink offering is a reference probably to his death. And he says of that prospect, I am glad. I rejoice with you all. You know, the Philippians, and we kind of know this from reading between the lines in this letter, the Philippians were deeply concerned about Paul. I mean, he's He's in prison. They're, they're concerned about his well-being. They're concerned about his health. He's, they're, they're concerned that he goes on living and serving and ministering. And so he now says to them, you know, it's all good. I, I'm good. To me, to live is Christ, he said earlier, and, and to die is gain. So don't worry about me. To depart and be with Christ is better by far. Heaven is just a breath away. So I'm good, and and just know that I'm rejoicing with you, and you'll be good too. We'll all be together again on the other side in the presence of Christ. So be glad and rejoice with me. Thanks for listening this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, would you take these words now and, and apply them to our hearts. Lord, may we not be people who are grumblers or constant arguers, constantly pleading our own case. And Lord, I, I pray that, that we might become those who become, that become uh, those who offer sacrifice to you and then also allow ourselves to be poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice of others, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain so that on the day of Christ we may have reason 
to exalt. In the day of Christ, we may have reason to celebrate and to rejoice. We look forward to that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And until then, help us to be found faithful. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our soon-coming King. Amen. In LifePoint, have a great week.